Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe and I are pleased to welcome our first guest to the show, Eugene Scott, covers identity politics for The Washington Post. He joined The Post from CNN Politics, where he covered the 2016 presidential election and was the senior reporter on the website's breaking news team. He's a regular on-air contributor providing analysis on MSNBC, CNN, CBS, and NPR. Eugene is a graduate of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Eugene Scott, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. Eugene, um, my guess is it's been a, a pretty busy time for you as the identity politics correspondent for The Washington Post. One of the things we hear a lot about Donald Trump when he speaks or tweets is people say they're shocked but not surprised. So answer both of those questions for me, if you can. Were you shocked by the tweet that started all this and what's come out since? And were you surprised by it? Well, I certainly was not surprised, but I was a bit shocked. And one of the reasons I was shocked, it's because there is so much coming out of this administration in the area of identity politics that it is difficult to keep up with everything that is happening. Most people don't realize that this is not the first time President Trump has told someone to leave the country if he did not agree with their politics, or better yet, if they did not agree with his. In 2018, he suggested that Colin Kaepernick should leave America. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, as we know, is the former San Francisco 49er football player who would kneel during the national anthem to protest racism and police violence, uh, something the president found deeply disrespectful and problematic. And so I was shocked because I initially thought, wow, this is the next chapter of a worldview that the president has consistently espoused. But then when I looked back at some old pieces I'd written, I recall that he had gone in this area previously. So I know you've looked a little bit over the last few months at kind of the the arc of the Republican Party and race, going back to George Wallace and Lester Maddox, to Richard Nixon, uh, to Donald Trump. I think Lee Atwater explained it best when he talked about how the Republicans believed that speaking in dog whistles rather than directly worked much better for them. But still, racism and race baiting was part of the message. Uh, Let's play that clip and then we can talk about it. And before we play this clip, we want our listeners to know that it contains several uses of a graphic racial slur. We decided to play it because we thought it was important to give you the full context of the words that were used. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. Or no, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out and yeah, now you all want to quote me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew, you know. So any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. Do you see this as a brand new chapter where now the president, rather than third parties and rather than, you know, speaking in code, is speaking directly and using very graphic language to send the message that it's it's us versus them. It's white people versus the others. 
Is this something new? Is it something that was always there and he's just found a new way to articulate it? It is a new chapter, and it's a continuation of a strategy that we know has been effective in the past and previously implemented. But we certainly are in a time where we're not hearing dog whistles anymore. It's been said that the president is speaking through a bullhorn. And when confronted earlier this week about whether or not he wanted to back away from this statement because of how popular it was with white nationalists, he said he did not, in part because many people agreed with him. This is not something we would have seen people focus on turning out white working class voters in decades past would have boldly said because they would have been aware of just how offensive it was to associate so closely with neo-Nazis and white nationalists. But we know that the president is very aware of his base. He knows what he campaigned on that was effective and winsome. And he's made it clear that he wants to continue doing what he did. Has the country changed? Has Trump changed the country? I mean, it's what's the chicken and egg uh, on this one? I certainly do not credit the president with the current political climate. I think the worldviews that exist existed before June 2015. I think the president was aware of what many people who he communicated with regularly on Fox News and social media were already feeling, and he tapped into that in a way that other candidates could not. But I think we overstate his contribution to the political climate when we credit him. Perhaps he has put a label on it and allowed us to identify it in ways that we had not before. But I like to think that Trumpism began before the president entered the Oval Office and will exist after he leaves. Do you think that it exists in part and existed in part as a reaction to or a response to electing Barack Obama as president? Or do you think that's just part of the baked-in narrative that we always had this part of our culture and this part of American society that just didn't get to come out in the sunlight as often? Or was that in part reactionary to the previous president? So I think it's a bit of both. These ideas as we communicated earlier, aren't new ideas. Right. And that's why you see people like David Duke, who's been right. in politics and in white supremacy circles for decades, say that this guy, this president, is saying the things we've been saying for years. But there's no doubt that the popularity of Trump is a reaction to Obama, the first black president, but also everything that that meant. And so I think a previous question was asking if the country had changed. One of the things I go back to very often is the number of uh, Trump supporters that said they backed him because of their own cultural anxieties about the direction in which the country was going. That doesn't just mean having people of color like the president in high positions of leadership and influence in the culture, but also the, the demographics looking different. I mean, there are communities that have large Latino populations that had like no Latinos 30 years ago. And that's been very difficult for some Americans. The progress, according to the left, on issues related to gender and sexuality have been quite difficult for a lot of traditionalists. More women in positions of power and influence and the Me Too movement calling behavior and words unacceptable that have been common in workplace environments for decades. LGBT issues becoming core platform issues on the left and even conservatives speaking out about the importance of giving gay Americans more rights. There are a lot of Americans who just feel like this has moved very quickly and in ways that make them uncomfortable and either want to see things slow down in that as they move in that direction or, or go backwards. stop or go backwards. And go back, meaning, again, making America great again. The idea that America was great before these things were in place. You wrote about something last week that some may have missed with everything else that was going on. Congressman Mike Kelly, a white Republican from Pennsylvania, told Vice News that he is a person of color. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said, quote, you know, they talk about people of color. I'm a person of color. I'm white. I'm Anglo-Saxon. People say things all the time, but I don't get offended. With a name like Mike Kelly, you can't be from any place but Ireland. Eugene, how do you explain the term people of color to Congressman Kelly and others like him who just don't seem to get it? Yeah, I mean, so I don't know Representative Kelly. I don't know if he actually knows what it means or even cares. But what, what I do know is that that statement I don't think was really about 
the exclusivity of the term people of color, but just really trying to respond to people of color and other marginalized communities about what he perceives as them being overly sensitive and getting riled up about things that he thinks they should not. But if he's open to the conversation, I, I would explain that the, the phrase people of color became popular in the 1970s, although we know that it has been used since at least the mid-19th century to refer to people of color, usually people who were neither black or white, but mixed race people during slavery and the years following. But in the 1970s, people of color really took on more popularity for a few reasons. Up until that point, the most common way to identify people of color was minorities or uh, non-white people. And the reason that was troublesome for some people is because both of those phrases are a reaction to whiteness and are uh, centered in whiteness. The idea is what you are is that you're not white. It was also concerning for people because they weren't always accurate. So let's take Washington, D.C., for example. Uh, there were years in the 1970s where Washington, D.C. was 70 percent black. Yeah. And so to call a group that's 70 percent of the population, the minority, mathematically is just inaccurate. And it doesn't so, work for the chocolate city. It doesn't, right? And so and that that people were really frustrated about that. And it's not even a rejection of whiteness. It wasn't about whiteness being wrong as much as they're making room for just the diversity of communities and how to be able to identify them in ways that were accurate. But I am a bit sensitive at best to people who do struggle with the appropriate terminology of groups, be they people of color or members of the LGBT community, because the truth is we do identify people in ways now that perhaps we didn't like 20 years ago. Once upon a time, like the words colored and Negro were acceptable right. that are no longer acceptable. And then you have words like queer, which were unacceptable, but now they are acceptable. And so keeping up with how groups want to identify uh, is not easy. But when you really do care to represent the interests of your constituents, uh, that's the least of your concerns. And I think his statement, with all due respect, was a bit disingenuous. I would not assume if I saw the name Mike Kelly sitting on a piece of paper right. that it was an Irish immigrant yeah. or the descendant of Irish immigrants. Um, and I don't think most people would. But I do think that at best, and I feel like I may be being a bit charitable, what Representative Kelly, Kelly may have been tapping into is the fact that Irish immigrants once upon a time did find themselves on the receiving end of criticism not that different from what we hear now and directed towards Latinos. We definitely saw that Irish immigrants were accused of being, you know, subversive or taking all of the jobs. That being a part of your narrative, using that as an excuse to dismiss the concerns of other demographic groups, is a bit odd. You would think that one would tap into their own experience and say, I know where you're coming from, considering that perhaps my grandparents went through the same thing. Do you think he just said it to perhaps encourage or give a wink to President Trump to continue with the racist attacks? I definitely think he wanted to make it clear to President Trump that he was not disavowing the president's words or pushing back or criticizing him, which is something we've seen multiple Republicans do for a very important reason. The Republican electorate is with President Trump. They've made that very clear. And to criticize the president in a way that irks him is to put your your seat in jeopardy. Also last week, you wrote about the history and the use of the phrase, quote, go back to where you came from and how it's been applied to black Americans in particular. And here's what you wrote, quote, a big part of the reason for the immense backlash to President Trump's weekend tweets telling four Democratic congresswomen to, quote, go back to where they came from is that phrase's well-worn use in racist and xenophobic ways. So talk about the history of the phrase a little bit and how it has engendered racist policies. Yeah, we saw a go-back use this week towards Americans who are of Asian descent and Latin American countries and African countries. But it really pick, picked up steam here in the States as the abolitionist movement was becoming increasingly effective in moving towards the end of slavery. And so you had organizations usually led by white Americans who found slavery to be troublesome but did not want black people who were enslaved to have the same rights and privileges as white Americans. And so they were trying to figure out what do you do when 
slavery ends and you have these communities that are predominantly consisted of black people, but white people still want to maintain power. Some individuals, including people of faith, including people who thought of themselves as more progressive on issues, thought the best solution was for these black people to go back to Africa or the Caribbean or South America, but anywhere that made it less likely that they would dismantle the structures that had been put in place in the United States. And so that was like the first time we really saw go back really surface. But repeatedly throughout a history since then, it's resurfaced whenever black people began to complain and protest and attempt to dismantle white supremacy. Eugene, covering identity politics for The Washington Post, I'm sure you and your editors have had to wrestle with how to deal with racism, defining it, And how and when do you call someone a racist? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. We had our top editor, Marty Barron, write about how we decided to identify Trump's tweets as racist. And it's a very detailed approach, I believe, helping people understand why we thought it was important to do that. And, and and it is in part because of the go-back sentiments really are rooted in the desire to discriminate against people of color. I was working on a piece just today with my editor that I, I did not finish about one of the reasons I believe the Republican Party is having a hard time getting on the same page and how it responds to Trump. It's in part because so many people have different ideas about what racism is and is not. There are individuals who think something is only racist when it hits extreme levels, when someone uses the N-word or someone is lynched. And there are other individuals who believe that racism is is simply having a prejudice and uh, preference regarding one ethnicity over others. And there are other people who also believe that Racism is rooted, at least in America, in a construct that just centers whiteness, right? And so you can't talk about racism in America without talking about white supremacy. And so getting people on the same page about racism is very difficult. And it's increasingly difficult when you move in spaces where just simply even acknowledging race and talking about race is viewed as difficult and negative and and something to be avoided. So when you saw the rally in Greenville last week and saw a sea of white faces chanting, send her back, are those people racists? I would think that most of them are. And it wasn't because of the send them back. I would think that most of the individuals saying that these lawmakers need to go back hold a view that says America is at its greatest when people are embracing a hierarchy that is rooted in the values and politics of the past and not moving towards the diversity of what these lawmakers are hoping to build. I may have known some folks there, I know or or maybe I knew no one there. That's a harder that's a hard question to answer after hearing, you know, just one phrase, but I think the easier question for me would be to ask them Why should I not think you are racist after chanting that, after those tweets and supporting this administration, given its policies since day one? And let me stay on this for one more hard question and give it back to Katie. Are 197 Republicans who refuse to condemn the sentiments in the tweet, are they racist or are they racist enablers? They're definitely Trump enablers, and that is what we know for sure. Uh, these are lawmakers who, some of whom went public with their disdain for the president's comments, but chose not to actually go on the record as condemning him, in part because they fear him. And he's been proven to be effective in responding harshly to those in his party who criticized them. And so these lawmakers do enable the president to continue to behave and speak and act in the way that he thinks is best. I want to lead off with a quote 
from American novelist Toni Morrison and follow up with with something else I saw this week to couch this question that I'm going to ask. Toni Morrison said, quote, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. And Bakari Sellers, the he's on CNN, also this, this South Carolina state legislator this week said, let's not get bogged down on the fact that the president is in fact racist. That's too simplistic. Let's focus on systems of oppression in this country where racism is pervasive. So the question is this. When these comments come out, when President Trump tweets racist comments, and we already have a lot of evidence on the table to indicate that he is in fact racist— it's news that he tweets it, but and, and it is your job to cover it, and it is the, the squad's job, the congresswoman's job to put their head down and keep doing the work of the people that they represent. But for the rest of us in the middle, how do we grapple with this when it happens? Is it to engage with it, to talk about it, to call it out, or is it to not let that be a distraction, call it what it is, a distraction, and move on because we already have enough evidence that this is a racist president and we don't need to know any more than that. What's next? What's our role there for all of us in between? It's really difficult. I mean, it always depends on what else is happening, what issues are connected to the incident that led that conversation in that moment to begin. So one thing Republicans who've been critical of the president have said is explain why these lawmakers' worldviews and policies are troublesome. And don't tell them to just get out. Explain to your base why you think they are harmful. Focus on the policy. Focus on the issues. The squad has really, in this past week, really tried to stay in front of the cameras explaining the, the things that they believe will make America great and the things that the president is pushing back on. And so there there really is a way to talk about both. And, and racism has to be spoken about, especially when it's coming from positions of power and privilege in the government. They shouldn't be ignored. His tweets should not be ignored. They're official White House statements. And we have to find a way to talk about all of it in a way that leaves readers and consumers as informed as possible about what it is that's going on. Eugene, I guess one last big question, and it's hard to answer with any certainty, but it's a two-parter. What's the possibility that this works, that the way the country is, that dividing the country in half will lead to Trump's reelection? And if that happens, where does the conversation about race in this country go to? Well, I think there's a good chance that the president will be reelected. Anyone covering the Democratic Party, or at least I should say the left, knows that the left ideologically is far more diverse than the right is. The right is largely behind Donald Trump. Never Trumpers and Republicans who do not support the president are are not a large enough number to have any significant shaping impact on their side. This whole thing started because of disagreements on the left between Nancy Pelosi, the establishment, and the progressive base. And so the spectrum runs far more broadly than we even talk about it just within the Democratic Party, not to even mention outside of the Democratic Party, folks like Bernie Sanders. And so I believe that diversity could be so split up, so divided that uh, it's that the left will not rally behind a candidate enough in 2020 to defeat Trump. Uh, We know that the states that Trump needed to win in 2016, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, have large percentages of white working class voters. And so the left putting for a candidate that can encourage its base to turn out and nip away at some of the independent voters and maybe even some of the voters that self-identify as Republican is quite a feat. And so it's not impossible, but I don't think anyone looking at the current political climate would look at this race and conclude that Trump doesn't have a shot. Uh, He has a very good shot. And if Trump continues to be Trump, which he is most likely to do, there is not going to be a pivot. I think most people understand that at this moment. Then conversations about race will continue and move forward. And those of us who write about it because we see how it affects business and culture and faith and sports and entertainment will be very busy. But it'll probably be very busy even if Trump loses because this president has has greatly reshaped this country in terms of how we talk about identity, 
think about identity and and view it. And I speak with voters on a regular basis who find themselves thinking about the diversity of this country and how that shapes policymaking and politics in ways that they had not before. And that's not necessarily negative. That's just to become aware of the fact that this country has 300 million people in, in it and passing policies and laws and ideas that benefit all of them or as many of them as possible, it's very, very difficult. Let me finish with one last question, uh, Eugene. Is there any silver lining in this? Is there any silver lining in the fact that the dog whistle is gone? We now have a president who's willing to come out and speak as a racist openly, brazenly. Can we look at that and say this is a moment where just by the sheer audacity and immorality uh, of Donald Trump, that this has surfaced an issue that we now can no longer ignore. I entered the mainstream media, at least re-entered after grad school, after studying uh, public policy. And so I'm a policy nerd. And I like to talk about, you know, these white papers and how we can put forward things that may improve, that may improve a community. And One of the things I've been enjoying so far with this campaign, which is what happens when you have 5,000 people running for president, is that so many people are putting out plans and ideas about how to fix issues. And many of the issues that people are talking about are so rooted in discrimination. And so one one of the great examples is we had way more conversation in 2016 about income inequality. Well, you can't talk about the wealth gap between black people and white people or Latino people and white people without talking about racism. You can't talk about unequal pay with between women and men. You can't talk about the absence of access to health care gaps-wise in, you know, rural communities versus more suburban affluent communities without talking about race. And so on nightly news, I mean, we're seeing experts come in from academia and think tanks that are really discussing topics at a depth that I don't think we had before previously. And I think the the move towards finding solutions to some of these problems is more likely where we currently are just because everything is so out front and on the table. And I think that's good. Well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing all of that with us. Again, we're we know you're busy, and it's it's going to get even busier given the fact that this is going to be a central part of the Trump campaign, and that is heating up right in front of our eyes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Eugene. Joe and I are pleased to welcome our next guest, Molly O'Toole. Molly is an immigration reporter for the Los Angeles Times, based here in Washington, D.C. Previously, she was a senior reporter at Foreign Policy covering the 2016 election and Trump administration. Molly has covered immigration and security from Mexico, Central America, West Africa, the Middle East, the Gulf, and South Asia. Molly O'Toole, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. Maui, there's been a lot of rhetoric around immigration, building the wall, Mexico paying for it, U.S. policy, each side pointing fingers at the other. In the midst of that, the administration seems to have made a very important decision on changing our asylum policy, and they did it in a somewhat unique way. Can you talk for a minute about what they did and what it means for people trying to reach this country? Last week, the Trump administration took a really significant step, probably the most aggressive step they've taken so far to essentially dismantle the U.S. asylum system. And they did so by publishing a rule in the Federal Register on Monday that took effect on Tuesday. And it essentially says that any migrant that arrives at the United States who has transited at least one country prior to arriving at the southern land border of the United States is no longer eligible to apply for asylum in the United States. And that basically wipes out any asylum claim at the southern border because most migrants have to travel through at least one country in order to get there except for Mexican residents. And so it basically wipes out everyone else. And it's the 
it's really quite significant that they're doing this. And they're already – we should note that there already is a lawsuit from the ACLU and several other groups to challenge it because, at least on its face, in several ways, it directly contradicts U.S. asylum law, U.S. immigration law. Yeah, that took 24 hours for them to file. I think in the Northern District of California, right? At least one there. Right. So they filed in San Francisco, and obviously uh, the president has made clear his own displeasure uh, with uh, with the courts out west because they have blocked several of his immigration policies so far, and it's expected potentially that they could do so again. They did take 24 hours to file. I think they were also waiting for the policy to actually go into effect. Right. So the rule was published on Monday, and the Federal Register took effect on Tuesday, last Tuesday. So— this means that people come from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. In, in some ways, the bulk of the people coming to the southern border now will be denied the ability to apply for political asylum. And it may have an impact on people coming from other countries also, right? Right. It, it certainly uh, – the way a lot of the coverage was framed is that this was directed towards Central Americans. It, it's not. It's actually directed toward anyone. And while Central Americans account for the majority, particularly Central American families and unaccompanied minors, account for the majority of arrivals at the southern border right now and have for some time, there are actually people coming from all over the world who are using essentially not only Central America but also South America basically as a land bridge to get to the U.S.-Mexico border where they can claim asylum. So I was recently doing reporting in South Texas and in northern Mexico and meeting people in an impromptu refugee camp in this small Mexican city and people from Cameroon, people from Angola, people from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, a lot of Haitians, a lot of Cubans, so people from all over the world. And this policy is not ex- it's not explicit. It's not specific to Central Americans. It's really anyone who's transit in another country. I should note there are very narrow exceptions in the rule, but they're so narrow as to basically be negligible. One, which is, it's almost comical at how impossible it is. There's an exception if you transit directly from a handful of countries around the world who are not signatories to the Conventions Against Torture, Conventions on Refugees. So if you somehow manage to come directly from North Korea or Myanmar, then potentially you'd be eligible for asylum in the United States. Obviously, that itinerary doesn't even exist. So some of these exceptions that have been carved out in this rule are basically next to impossible. And do you have a theory about, given the the import of this, why this hasn't gotten the attention that rhetoric like build the wall or send them back or things like that? Well, I think it was it was approached in a different way. It was published quietly in the Federal Register last Monday. And that's something probably that a lot of the American public aren't even familiar with. And so it's sort of done as an administrative rule. After the fact, we have the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice who put out a joint statement, but there wasn't any big press conference about it. The president didn't announce it in advance. In fact, he's hardly addressed it this week. He sort of addressed it obliquely in some remarks in a cabinet meeting. And when you look at the published rule, so there was sort of a it's it's a little wonky. And if you look at the language that the government uses in the rule, it's really interesting. They said part of the reason they didn't do a sort of public comment period, which is generally required with a, a when a rule is published in the Federal Register, is because they didn't want to give the Central American countries and Mexico heads up because they thought efforts would be taken to block it. And they also talked about how they're basically using this as leverage in the ongoing negotiations to try and force Mexico and then countries further south, particularly Guatemala, to agree to what's known as a safe third country agreement by which if any migrant passed through their country before attempting to claim asylum in the United States, they'd be ineligible because that country would be considered, quote unquote, safe. But what this new rule does, it effectively says that the entire world is a safe third country without the rest of the world having agreed. But I thought it was really interesting, the language, if you actually read the rule that the administration used, they seem to be acknowledging that they almost expected it to be struck down, but they were using it as a leverage point in these ongoing negotiations. So sort of failing to get Guatemala to agree or Mexico to agree to a safe third country agreement, this is what they were then going to be using in the meantime. Right. They're effectively, by bypassing this this notice and comment period, this 
period that would allow the public to generally comment on the rule, which is required under the law, they are, yes, carving out all of those countries that would be able to comment or try and get around the rule. But they're also not allowing the American public, who has a right to comment on these rules before they become public, to engage in this process of making the rule final. And they're cutting off the ability of anyone in the American public to be able to participate in this rulemaking process. But it's not the first time the Trump administration has bypassed this notice and comment period, this period that allows input from the various constituencies that are engaged and that have equities in the decisions that they're making related to asylum. So we could talk all day about asylum. We want to ask you about a few more things before we let you go. Notably, you're reporting in some other areas, including the ICE raids that have been a hot topic for the past week. ICE raids were supposed to take place in approximately 10 U.S. cities weekend before last over the weekend. And I want to quote from your reporting on this issue. The on-again, off-again raids favored by the White House and some of the president's most hardline aides are also deepening fissures within his already embattled Department of Homeland Security. So what actually happened with the raids? And is this part of a larger battle within the Trump administration on immigration? Absolutely. I think we should read it this way. So obviously, this is the second time in which the president acknowledged or announced that there were going to be these sort of mass raids. And there was a differing reporting about how big they would be. This time, uh, they were talking about targeting 2,000 Central American families, mostly recent arrivals, who they said had final orders of removal and basically hadn't shown up for court hearings. There's some dispute about actually that in and of itself. There's been issues with essentially final orders of removal being issued without the person ever having known about their court appearance. And so there's been some challenges with that. But the first time the president announced the raids and then essentially immigration and customs enforcement had to pull back because they said, well, their, their agents were in danger and essentially that the operation was undermined. The president announced it himself, but there was a feeling within ICE and there were some anonymous comments that came from the administration that somehow acting Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleenan had given out certain operational details to some reporters. And that was the real reason that the raids were called off the first time. So then we have this sort of second go around. The president did also confirm that it was going to happen. The New York Times reported that it was going to happen. Now, it should be noted that ICE officials were really reticent to comment on this. They said we're not going to essentially they weren't going to undermine the operation by giving out the details because in theory, if you actually wanted to conduct raids and remove people from the country, you would do it quietly. You wouldn't want to give them any notice so that people knew that they were going to be coming, essentially. So this is twice now where it's been publicized in some way. And then they sort of pulled back again. Now, ICE does sort of do uh, their ongoing raids on a smaller scale. So part of it is, okay, what is this big operation that the administration is highlighting and what is normal business? What is a political spin to make it look like the Trump administration is really cracking down on people who are inside the country with orders of removal or who are here illegally? And what is just sort of normal operations for ICE? So there's a lot of that going on. But I think the important thing to look at now twice that this has happened is it really does reveal tensions within the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security has, I think it's about a dozen vacancies in top leadership posts. Acting is in front of almost every title that comes up. Almost no one is Senate confirmed at this point. The purge, quote unquote purge, that sort of started with the ouster of Kirsten Nielsen, and that came shortly on the heels of the man who the Trump administration had actually formally nominated to lead ICE. They withdrew his nomination at the last minute. The next day, Nielsen, the former Homeland Security Secretary who was confirmed, she resigns. This purge really has been continuing, and it has revealed tensions within the Department of Homeland Security. And so now there's tensions with McAleenan, who's the acting Homeland Security Secretary, and with Mark Morgan, who has moved over from the acting head of ICE and was a really strong advocate of these raids, the quote-unquote family op is what they were calling it. And he's now moved over to be the head of 
Customs and Border Protection, which is the parent agency of Border Patrol. So there's a lot of tension within DHS. Is that tension within DHS, between DHS and the White House, or within the White House, or all of the above? All of the above. Okay. There seems to be a lot of disagreement because there's, there's I mean, the, the heart of the matter is that there's ongoing frustration within the Trump administration that they, essentially, the president campaigned on reducing immigration and stepping up enforcement. And while the first year of the Trump administration, fiscal year 2017, which part of it is the Obama White House, it was 50-year lows in terms of apprehensions at the border, which is the best measure we use for illegal immigration. 50-year lows their first year. And then it steadily started creeping up again. And there's still continued frustration within the White House that no matter how aggressive the steps they've taken to reduce immigration, both legal and illegal, they haven't been able to turn back that trend. They haven't been able to reduce that number. We now have one month in June in which there was a decrease, but there's still frustration within the White House that essentially no matter how hard line a policy they try and implement, they haven't actually succeeded in deterring that migration. Molly, isn't it possible that much, if not all of this, is is just political. I look at the ICE raids and I see that the president didn't have that much interest in ICE raids. He wanted to be, look tough, but he also wanted to scare the hell out of a lot of people who, who are here uh, that are undocumented. And, you know, those people who went into hiding last weekend, they don't really care whether the ICE raids were real or not. They were afraid. And as a lot of people have said that when it comes to Trump, cruelty is the point. You put people in cages so that more people won't come. I get that Stephen Miller is upset that one more person came into this country. But isn't a lot of this, if not all of it, driven by politics? I think much of it is. With the ICE raids, as you rightly noted, I mean, think it almost doesn't matter whether – it does matter. I don't mean to suggest it doesn't matter, especially to people's you – know, it does matter to people's lives. But if we try and look at it from a, a political analysis standpoint, it almost doesn't matter whether they go forward or not. Part of the intention is the fear that's created, is the appearance of doing something, of being aggressive – And it doesn't actually matter whether the ICE raids take place or not. But one of the interesting effects of these on-again, off-again ICE raids, especially after last weekend, is it seems one of the biggest takeaways is that people now have more clarity about their rights. There's been some reporting that they could be routine ICE enforcement actions that have taken place over the last couple days, and people haven't opened their doors because it was widely publicized that you don't have to open your door to an ICE agent unless they have a warrant that's signed by a judge. So while the Trump administration, I do believe, there's a political intent with sort of creating this fear and this appearance of action, whether or not the action actually happens, it could have backfired in another way, which is to make people more aware of their rights. But I I think the connection that you made, we can also connect it with the new asylum rule and these on-again, off-again raids. There almost seems to be the expectation that the new asylum rule isn't going to stand, but it's still a win that can be pulled out by the Trump administration if it does get blocked by the courts or if the ICE raids don't, don't in fact happen. Molly, based on your reporting down at the border and the, and your colleagues, I'd love to get your thoughts on the conditions down there. Vice President Pence was there now a little while ago, and he came out and said it was akin to summer camp. There are others that call them concentration camps. I'm interested in what you believe about the conditions. And then secondly, how much of this is intentional cruelty? How much of this is an administration that just doesn't know what the hell it's doing and can't manage something this complicated? I wish I had the answer between the degree to which it's intentional cruelty and simply administrative dysfunction. And we talked about all of the vacancies at the Department of Homeland Security, the tensions within Homeland Security, agency to agency, within the leadership, between the White House and Homeland Security. So there certainly is evidence of bureaucratic dysfunction, and that absolutely contributes to their flailing response to the situation at the border. I also think that the president in his rhetoric, his top aides and his top officials, they've been explicit in that a lot of these policies are intended to deter. And so there is an element of intentional cruelty there. What's really interesting about the revelations about detention conditions, and, and we're talking about a few different areas. We're talking about detention conditions at 
border patrol facilities that are never meant to hold people. They're supposed to be sort of just temporary processing facilities, the most immediate place people might go. We're talking at the border. We're talking about Customs and Border Protection facilities, which are also supposed to be temporary holding facilities, but they're for a little sort of longer-term processing. And then we have immigration and customs enforcement facilities. And those are longer-term detention that would happen before a person is removed within the United States. And then we're talking about health and human services, and they're the ones charged with taking care of unaccompanied minors. So all of these things have been conflated, but together they, they should be seen as, uh, I think, symptomatic of really terrible conditions across all the agencies, across the border. And and Homeland Security, the Trump administration and Homeland Security officials have sort of pushed back and said that these claims about terrible conditions are unsubstantiated. And that has not been what we have found in our reporting. The Homeland Security Department also, before some of this came out, basically offered no access to these detention facilities, the ones that they were in charge of. But HHS also doesn't offer much access to the detention facilities. So the most of the reporting that we got were from people who came out of them and were describing things like not being given any access to showers, not being given access to enough water, basically being fed cookies three times a day or meals that were not nutritional and, and, and very small and so always being hungry. You know, the term that's been used for a long time is Yalera for some of the detention facilities, which means icebox in Spanish. So describing being very cold, only being given a space blanket. They have described these conditions, and this was sort of the best we could do. But then once all of the reporting comes out, then CBP gives access to these detention facilities, these choreographed tours, and then says, see, look, everything is fine, even though they weren't offering access to those facilities before. So the pushback from Homeland Security and from the administration that these descriptions of really horrible conditions, not just for migrant children, but for migrants in general at the border, that doesn't follow with our reporting. It doesn't follow with the government's own reporting, the inspector general or government accountability office, with court-appointed lawyers uh, and doctors who have gone into these facilities. And there's also been an interesting rhetorical turn. Kevin McLean and the acting Homeland Security Secretary is basically saying, we warned you. We've been asking for money for a year now, and we warned you how bad things were getting and how overstretched we were. But Congress, you wouldn't give us the money, and so this is your – this is essentially your fault, which I think is a very interesting rhetorical turn, also especially because now they have passed the humanitarian bill, which is $4.6 billion. It doesn't answer for all the various ways in which we know that the Department of Homeland Security is not spending the money it already has efficiently. This is not just a matter of, oh, CBP was trying its best with a difficult situation. No, there are laws about how migrants should be held, and those laws were broken. It doesn't matter if you're in a difficult situation or not. That's not some kind of legal exception. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of accountability there will be if any, for those conditions that we've reported on and others have reported on, regardless of whether Homeland Security officials and the White House want to either claim that it's unsubstantiated or that it's somehow the fault of the Congress. I would imagine that if you're you're cold, you're hungry, you have no place to sleep and you haven't showered in a month, it doesn't matter whether it's intentional cruelty or bureaucratic screw-ups. It's shameful that it's happening in this country. Maui, thanks for joining us. We learned a lot here. Yeah, we'll certainly invite you back once we get to the accountability phase of this conversation, and we look forward to it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, Joe, so for what's on your mind this week, I want to go back to your famous, now maybe infamous op-ed, To Impeach or Not to Impeach, in the great debate with Philippe here and on their podcast, Unredacted. Are you still towing the line on do not impeach? It is getting harder. Trump makes it harder and Bill Barr makes it harder. And the brazenness of defying congressional authority makes it harder. But, you know, my bottom line in that piece was that I think that Donald Trump is destroying the Republican Party. And this past week is a prime example of that. He has taken the party to a place where he is now espousing his own racism as the party's racism. And there are only four members of his party in Congress who are willing to stand up to him. And I think in the long run, 
rather than go through an impeachment process that will get blocked in the Senate, the country will be in a better place and a more progressive place as the Republican Party collapses unto itself. Because, you know, as I argued in the piece, the things that Republicans have been known for, free trade that brings economic expansion here at home and creates jobs, being tough on communism and dictators, particularly on Russia, all those things are gone. All of the foundations of the Republican Party are gone, except for one. And that's, you know, what I'll politely call intolerance. That's the racism, the xenophobia, the homophobia. And that's what Trump has left for the party. When he's gone, you you can be certain that some in the party might want to go back to some of their previous positions. But the party will be leaderless and without foundation. And I think in the long run, that's the prize here. The prize here is to not only undo what Trump has done to the country culturally, politically, at the Supreme Court, it's to turn the government around, the priorities around, to more closely match where the people are, which I firmly believe are in a much more progressive place than the Republican Party can even begin to address. All right. And we also saw in the past week that the Southern District of New York concluded the campaign finance investigation involving Michael Cohen and the Trump Organization and Individual One, who we all know is President Trump. What do you make of no further charges and how that investigation wrapped up? I think it's really curious. I think there was a lot of informed speculation from people who used to work in the Southern District of New York, whose legal expertise is is unparalleled, that there would be more uh, action on that case. We know from the indictment of Michael Cohen that individual one, now the government officially recognizes as the president of the United States, is in all intents and purposes an unindicted co-conspirator. We know from the documents that were released in the middle of last week that the president was intimately involved in the transactions, in the plotting to silence Stormy Daniels and Ms. McDougal. But it's, it, it, is, it does stretch credibility to think that other people in the organization, this, the CFO, for example, and other people in the Trump organization were also not involved. So I don't think we know the end of this story yet. And I think a big question, and we may not be able to answer this until this president is gone, is the role of Bill Barr. He is clearly serving first as the president's personal defense attorney and second as the attorney general. And I think it will be very important to get his role defined and whether he used his position as attorney general as the head of the Southern District of New York and all of the other districts to terminate this investigation, because I think that raises you know multiple troubling questions. The final question I have is... It is, it's clear from the Mueller investigation and the conversation around that that DOJ does not think uh, a president can be indicted. So that's a potential reason why President Trump was not indicted in this case. The evidence is clear that he was a conspirator. And the question will be when there's another attorney general in perhaps January of 2021, whether the president will face charges in this campaign finance conspiracy. That's an open question. And I think we'll get answers to both that question and the role of Attorney General Barr only after Trump is out of office. All right, Joe, thank you. That's all we've got for this week. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Katie. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 